Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the fine art of lying and misinformation in politics, the ALP election review, will it be enough to guide the Labor Party back into office, and the politics of climate change yet again. Who's to blame for the New South Wales bushfires? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, amateur lycanthrope. We've reached a new low in Australian politics where simply stretching the truth isn't enough for politicians and the next step has been taken where official documents are being manipulated and presented as fact. The Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, attacked an opponent, the Lord Mayor of Sydney Council, Clover Moore, over vast amounts of spending on air flights and travel and accusing her of contributing massive amounts of greenhouse emissions in the process. The problem was, he used figures from a forged and fabricated document and we still don't know who committed the forgery. We've heard a great deal in recent years about fake news and living in the post-fact era, but ministers using forgeries to attack their political opponents, we've reached a new low and we're entering some uncharted territory. It wasn't that long ago where you'd definitely resign over such an act, and a few people picked up very quickly that this was Utegate all over again. Utegate was the most generous option. We don't know how involved Angus Taylor was involved in the forgery, but it was certainly involved. He was claiming that the first document went up and that the council must have taken it down and they put up the correct document. It's possible he was directly involved in the forging. I suspect it's more likely one of his staff forged it and presented it to him, whether they told him it was a forgery or whether they were just able to um, pass it off to him as a genuine thing and he didn't check. I've read whispers that his wife has form in this. I don't know if that's the case. But certainly there's a Godwin-Gretsch figure in there somewhere. Well, ministers are very, very busy people. And it's impossible to believe that Angus Taylor would have actually sat down and altered the figures, opened up the document, got out the Photoshop file, and then just started manipulating the, the figures and then started talking about it in Parliament. But certainly one of his staffers or someone else, it's just a question of whether Angus Taylor did know that the figures were unrealistic or whether they had been forged or not. And he did claim that $16.9 million was spent on air travel. That's a phenomenal amount. That's virtually everyone in the council travelling by plane to Perth and back every single day of the year. As I mentioned, ministers are very, very busy people, but surely someone using those sort of figures to attack their opponent would have double-checked those before standing up in parliament and making those accusations. He gave an apology which was more of a, I was sorry I was caught and I shouldn't have done it, rather than I'm sorry I did it and it was wrong. I also suspect that he was at risk of being sued. It was quite defamatory. I mean, it's an outrageous amount of money for travel. Uh, Twelve councillors, it's what $1.2 million per councillor to travel. And most councillors don't need to travel that much. Occasionally there's trips to sister cities or overseas conferences or even interstate conferences and things like that. And, you know, these can be justified and are often justifiable. I'd have thought that you'd you'd look at that figure and say, that can't be right. Let's triple confirm it before we run with this. But then again, he's a man under fire and he's a desperate man. And desperation often causes questionable decisions. 
This type of political behaviour does follow on from Donald Trump in the United States and Boris Johnson in the UK, where they make deliberate mistruths, outright lies and complete rubbish. And they also realise very few people in the media will actually pick them up on these outright lies. And if they ever do, it's far too late. The lie has travelled far and wide before the truth actually catches up. The Morrison government is engaging in exactly the same type of political behaviour. Scott Morrison pretty much every day of the week will deny or just make it up and claim that it's all in the Canberra bubble. Angus Taylor, well we've got evidence about his misdemeanours. Barnaby Joyce also making up material as he goes along. There's a new Liberal MP, Katie Allen. She replaced Kelly O'Dwyer in the seat of Higgins. She claimed greenhouse emissions have fallen in Australia since 2005. Every key indicator produced by government reports and supported by a wide range of scientific research has shown that greenhouse emissions have increased dramatically. Yet here we have an MP appearing in the media and telling a complete lie. So where do we actually go from here? Politicians fabricating information, knowingly putting out false information and not suffering any repercussions when they actually do. It goes down, I think, to we need massive media reform because the media should be holding politicians to account. Now, the media needs to be held accountable too. But if a politician of whatever stripe, Liberal, Labor, National, Greens, Independent, miscellaneous, tells a lie or tells an untruth or misspeaks or says something that's not right, they should be called out on it. Sure, people say the wrong things accidentally, the wrong word comes out, under pressure you say yes when you mean no, sentences get diverted halfway, changing the complete meaning of the sentences your brain goes through. And I know politicians get a lot of training in this, but we're all human. The reason Angus Taylor has pretty much got away with it so far, and I don't think it's ended yet, is because the media haven't run hard with it. The reason that Barnaby Joyce gets away with it is because the media don't hold him to account. The reason Scott Morrison gets away with it is that the media don't hold him to account. The other thing too, actually, is that the current formation of the right aren't playing by the rules. And it shows just how fragile the system is. Because if you stop playing by the rules, oh, this has happened, so you need to resign. This has happened, so there's this consequence. The system doesn't work anymore. The system is based on everybody's goodwill. And I think what Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison, Donald Trump has shown is that the systems are actually very fragile. According to a survey produced by the Social Research Institute, trust in politics has diminished severely in recent years. Only 41% of citizens are satisfied with the workings of democracy in Australia, and that's down from 86% in a similar survey in 2007. And it has fallen sharply since 2013, when that particular rating was at 72%. So that's a dramatic decrease in trust in politics in Australia. Now, I don't want to cast too many aspersions here, but that downfall of trust in the political system seems to coincide with the six years of the Liberal government. Could there be a relationship between these two factors? I think it's probably cumulative. If you look at the needless instability of the Kevin Rudd years and the Julia Gillard years, where both leaders were undermined continually. Now, I'm not saying that before then was a golden age of politics in which there wasn't undermining and sniping, but something happens around 2007. It'd be interesting to look at all the factors 2006, 2007, 
where things change. Worldwide, we're seeing protests. Chile has gone off Lebanon, Syria. There's a wide range of factors involved in the decrease of public trust in Australia. There's the distrust of the role of the media and its failure to put a check on political power. There's also a greater role in the use of social media. And then there's the personalities that have been involved in politics during this time. We could look at someone like Kevin Rudd, who didn't have any factional support within the Labor Party. Now, that's not his fault, but not having that factional support gave rise to instability, and that led to his downfall. There's also Tony Abbott. His influence in the fall of public trust can never be underestimated. But it's not just the one issue. There's a wide range of factors involved here. In 10 years' time, it would be interesting to look back and look at it with a bit more distance and see all the factors. I think the GFC had a lot to do with it, actually. We might be looking at 2008. Australia gets through the GFC pretty much unscathed, but the rest of the world doesn't. And I think that's where things change. And there has been some discussion about how trust in policies can be improved. Truth in policies legislation, similar to truth in advertising, although that's more of a code of conduct process regulated by the industry itself, so that's close to being useless. I'm not sure exactly how truth in politics could operate, but you can imagine a government that is the main beneficiary of those low levels of trust in the political system is not going to want to change that system in a hurry. There's funding and donations reform, that's one area that could be improved. The, the public is cynical about large donations coming in from mining companies and energy resource companies. But looking out over the political horizon, political reform is just nowhere on the agenda and it's very unlikely to happen in the short term. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and listen in through SoundCloud and Spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we have a close look at the review of where the Labor Party went wrong at the 2019 election. May 2019, Labor lost an election they were largely expected to win, and after a six-month analysis managed by Jay Weatherall and Craig Emerson, they've released a 92-page report outlining where they went wrong, and what they can do to improve their chances at the next federal election due at some point before 2022. These types of reviews are rarely made public, but it's quite a comprehensive document. It looks at policy issues, candidate selection, digital campaign techniques, grassroots involvement of the rank and file membership and election day strategies. But the biggest factors they've nominated are a weak campaign strategy, the inability to adapt to changing political circumstances and an unpopular leader. These types of reviews are especially difficult for political parties. The Liberal Party went through a similar process when they lost the unlosable election in 1993, but they managed to get themselves together for a landslide victory in 1996. Do you think there's enough in this review for the Labor Party to lead themselves back into office at the next election, or do they need to try out something different? I thought that they ran a pretty decent campaign. 
I don't think it was a great campaign, and I think I'm on record as saying that here, but it wasn't a bad campaign. And in fact, I thought it was a better campaign than the Liberal Party in that there weren't as many gaffes. I can't remember any figure saying anything horribly embarrassing but there were four or five Liberal Party figures who did, and who, to be fair, who were called out for it. It's hard from opposition, of course. It's hard from opposition, and that's true for both sides. I think the policies were good. They could have been better in some ways. Their asylum seeker policy seems more to be pandering to votes that they're never going to get, rather than any sensible, solvable, usable issue. I think they were easily distracted on technical details. The whole franking credits thing, and we said that at the time, this is a distraction that's going to, it's not going to win you any points and people don't understand what it is. And there's no point in taking on the other side about it because what happened, it was pointed at every old person. For a lot of people, it was seen as an attack on their grandparents or their parents. And it wasn't a large amount of money in terms of a budget issue when there was so much else they could have gone on. I'd have thought that having Barnaby Joyce in your team would be guaranteed free kick for the other side for the whole campaign. But there you go. Well, the franking credits is an unfair policy. It actually costs quite a lot of money. Labor did lose a lot of skin on this policy, but to put it into context, it does cost $5 billion per year. That's a massive amount of money. But putting it into context, it's actually less than 1% of overall government spending of $500 billion per year. I guess it gets to that issue of adaptability within a political campaign when there's an issue that seems to be developing or ongoing. And, and the franking credits policy, it wasn't like it was a policy that was developed or introduced just a couple of weeks before the election campaign. They actually had that at the 2016 election as well. So they did have enough time to look at that policy and assess it, not so much as far as whether it's a fair or unfair policy, but look at the process politically. It caused them a lot of political damage. The Labor Party, it might have looked like they ran a good solid campaign, but a good campaign is one that wins the election, and they didn't win the election. But there are many other factors going on beneath the surface. The digital campaign on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, these are the new frontiers that are still being developed for political purposes. Labor performed very well in the digital field in the 2016 election, but this time around, the Liberal Party was streets ahead, and that's one area where Labor was left way behind. Looking at the results, how the results were skewed in America through social media and through the deliberate manipulation of, and how the results were skewed in Britain with the Brexit referendum, there's a part of me that wonders if there was interference through things like Facebook and through things like Twitter and Instagram. Whether Australia is a big enough country to worry about for someone like Cambridge Analytica I imagine that Vladimir Putin wouldn't be too worried about Australia as such. Those right-wing think tanks. Steve Bannon was out here, which suggests that there might have been some questionable behaviour with targeted advertising and bots, etc. Well, quite often people such as Steve Bannon, they're guns for hire. So if there's a gig for them in Australia or New Zealand or wherever they need to go, if there's enough money in it for them to act as an advisor or to let them know how to run a fake news campaign or a propaganda campaign, they'll be there. I don't know that it's worthwhile Labor chasing this down because it's one, hard to prove and two, doesn't actually get to the main election loss issues. 
one of the things that they said was the unpopularity of Bill Shorten, which featured very heavily in the first draft of the report. They then wound that back. The interesting thing with Bill Shorten is he was involved in the political execution of two prime ministers, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. It was his factional movements in the end that brought both of them down. They say people have short memories, voters have short memories, but they don't. For some things, they have very long memories. And I think that was a part of it, that it got into people's head that you couldn't trust Bill Shorten. Well, there must also be so many subconscious factors that come into play here. So Mm. the media did keep telling the entire electorate pretty much for five and a half years or six years that Bill Shorten is unpopular. But still having said that, if Bill Shorten is unpopular, the leadership team within the Labor Party has to do something about that. I'm not sure what they could do, whether it's a matter of putting on rock star sideburns onto Bill Shorten's face or giving him a rock star sunglass appearance, better fitting suits. John Howard actually had quite a large image problem in the early 90s, but he changed his teeth. He did a makeover. That's what politicians do. So it's probably a case where, sure, Bill Shorten might have been seen to have been unpopular as far as the electorate concerned, but the, the problem was that the Labor Party did very little about it. And also on that statistical aspect of being unpopular and disapproval and that sort of issue, Bill Shorten, in the lead up to the last federal election, his disapproval rating was 51%, but Scott Morrison's was 45%. That's not too far behind, but no one ever pointed out, well, why is Scott Morrison so unpopular? It was always on the side of Bill Shorten. And I think that's probably where the problem was, that Many in the media just ignore the fact that Scott Morrison was almost as unpopular as Bill Shorten. But conversely, the other factor is the Labor Party knew that they had a problem with Bill Shorten's unpopularity. Maybe it was just an issue where they thought, well, we can skim over this issue because we're riding high in the other polls. That's the one that counts. Tony Abbott was unpopular. He won in a landslide victory. So perhaps they were expecting the same sort of result, but it just didn't happen this time around. And I've said this before too. Labor works best with inspiring leaders, charismatic, unconventional leaders. Gough Whitlam, Paul Keating, Bob Hawke, Kevin Rudd, who had a strange kind of charisma. He didn't have that fill-the-room charisma of a Gough Whitlam or a Paul Keating, but he could certainly draw a crowd to him. Julia Gillard had a presence about her. Kim Beasley, intelligent man, capable man, well-liked by his peers and colleagues, but couldn't grasp the imagination. Simon Crean, intelligent guy. In fact, I think one of the unsung Labour heroes because he reformed the party, which probably cost him the prime ministership. But he he was a numbers man and not a very exciting fellow to look at in the way that Paul Keating could electrify a, a room watching Paul Keating in interviews with journalists, particularly once they got him onto a topic he wanted to talk about. Bob Hawke, not universally beloved, but deeply beloved by the 56 or 58% of people who liked him. That was a 100% commitment to them, and conversely, totally hated by the other side. I've held off criticising Anthony Albanese because he hasn't done anything terribly incompetent yet. I know he's disappointed a lot of followers, but he took over essentially a broken party. And insiders are saying he's playing the long game. And so I think we've got to give him a bit of breathing space in the way that 
when Scott Morrison gets rolled, we will likely give his successor a bit of breathing space to see if he or she will grow into the role. I think that's only fair. Even if it's somebody who, on the face of it, doesn't bode well like Peter Dutton, you never know. The, the pressures of office can change people. The Labor Party Review document, it's a comprehensive document. There is a lot of information in there and it does offer a blueprint for what the Labor Party has to do if it wants to have a better chance at the next election. I'm sure it doesn't contain everything, but it does announce their line of thinking and their strategies to their opponents and that could actually be a problem. But just as a pointer to the next election, most long-term governments, when they've managed to pull off surprise election victories, that particular term of government ends up being quite poor and they usually lose office at the next election. And there are three elections from the past 30 years that we can look at. The 1993 election, which Labor won against the odds, they were thrashed at the 1996 election. The Conservatives in the 1992 British election, they won against the odds as well, but they lost in a landslide to Tony Blair in 1997. At the state level in Australia, West Australian Labor won a surprise election victory in 1989, but they were thrashed by the Liberal Party in 1993. And just going back to that 1993 federal election, the Liberals did lose the unlosable election and they went through a lot of turmoil after that. John Hewson resigned in 1994 as the leader and then Alexander Downer became the Liberal leader for 18 months. John Howard then became the leader in 1995 and the rest is history. So there could be similarities here for Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party, but we'll just have to wait and see how this story pans out. These are just three examples, and just because it's happened in the past, it doesn't mean that it will happen again, but history is against long-term governments that manage a surprise victory, and it usually ends up being their last term in office. The historian in me looks at things like the 1961 election, which Labor should have won, and the Liberals scrape back in, in, and in fact, we can do the 54 election, the 61 election, the 69 election, definitely, in which for a whole range of factors, and luck played a part, I don't think we'll ever have 20 years of the one government again. Well, there is always that schism between public expectations or media expectations with elections and political processes and the result in the election itself. As we found in the May 2019 election, there there was a large schism between expectations and the final result. And of course, you can look forward to that political horizon and think, well, how is, how is this going to change? There was an expectation that after the 2004 election that John Howard was going to remain in office until he was 85. That didn't happen. He lost at the next election. There's always this perception that oh, things are not working out so well. There's a lot of pressure currently on our Anthony Albanese. It's mainly coming from the left of the Labor Party. Statistically, and, and again, there's not too much that we can read in the polls because there haven't been that many put out and they've only come out from a news poll over the past six months. Anthony Albanese, according to those uh, minimal polls that we've got, he's not performing too badly. The Labor and the Liberal Party at the moment are locked on 50-50 in the two-party preferred voting pattern. So it's still 2019. The next election is due in 2022. There's still a long way to go. We don't know what's going to happen in that political process, but there's economic circumstances that come into play. It's how complacent the Liberal and the National parties end up being over the next period of time. There's so many different factors that come into play. I suspect we might have an early election towards the end of next year. 
if not before. I think it'll be forced by independence. He's only got a one-seat majority. It only takes one by-election and suddenly things have changed. There's a couple of seats that might come up for by-election and yeah, things could change very quickly. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, climate change and the political fallout from the massive bushfires in New South Wales. Climate change didn't end up being the greatest moral challenge of our time, as former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said in 2007. But it's ended up being the greatest political challenge of our time. Globally, climate change issues have fallen along political lines. Conservatives either deny human-induced climate change is occurring and want business to continue as usual in more ways than one, or think that there's not much that can be done to mitigate climate change, so why bother? The progressive side of politics wants immediate action and a quick transformation into renewable energies and more sustainable environments, based on the overwhelming scientific knowledge in its favour. The only area where the science might be wrong is that severe climate change might be happening sooner than expected, as we saw unseasonal fires in California and eastern Australia, and there's been a range of severe bushfires in the north coast region of New South Wales. The New South Wales government has made severe budget cuts to fire services in New South Wales and nationally, Scott Morrison has refused to meet with former fire chiefs for seven months and they wanted to discuss their concerns about extreme fire conditions and he refused to meet them because of their concerns related to climate change issues. It really is time for conservative governments in Australia to stop playing politics with climate change issues and start taking extreme weather events seriously. The worst bushfires we've had, I remember the 94 bushfires where I looked down the main street of Hornsby and it was like a Dante's Inferno. I was driving out of Sydney for a family event and couldn't leave, couldn't get out of the city. Every road out of the city was blocked and cut off. That was a highly minimal problem compared to the people who were losing houses and the people who died. But, you know, I do remember that weekend very well, trying to find alternate routes to get up to the Hunter Valley. And the road to Lithgow was closed off, going down through Wollongong and back up round was closed off. There was just no way out. These ones look like they could be worse. There are those claiming it's got nothing to do with, and they point to the 1925 fires and they point to the 1954 fires and they point to, they were nowhere near as many didn't cover as much land and happened in a smaller window of time. Bushfire season used to be January and it stretched slowly into December. We're at the beginning of November and we're already at severe. We're beyond catastrophic. We also had those bushfires in southeast Queensland in September. We, we currently do have bushfires in southeast Queensland in November, but we had those in early September as well in those areas. So- All of these bushfires are happening outside of the normal peak bushfire. They're not meant to be happening in early September. They're not meant to be happening in early November, yet here we are. It is. And all we're getting from 
those in power are budget cuts. $30 million cut from New South Wales government budget, $50 million from the federal government. And this is tiny amounts of money. This is 1% of the franking credits we were talking about earlier. Gladys Berejiklian's plaintive, honestly not today response to someone asking about climate change in response to the bushfires shows the lack of competence. We'll be hammered here in iTunes again for being biased. The people still denying that climate change is happening and is a man-made thing. Not only Malcolm Roberts, but there's a liberal backbencher who is claiming that the Bureau of Meteorology being part of the huge conspiracy and falsifying data. It's always time to be political, and Liberal and National political leaders have been quick to say, as you mentioned, today is not the day to talk about climate change and politicise the bushfires, but it's an attempt to close down debate, and these leaders have actually been politicising the bushfires themselves. The Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, he accused those making the link with climate change as raving lunatics and pure, enlightened and woke capital city greenies. That seems to be politicising the bushfires. There was also the New South Wales national leaders, John Barillaro. He's blamed green policies and called them a bloody disgrace. They've also gone for that old cliche of attacking opponents as Chardonnay drinking, latte sipping, inner city types. Now, it just shows how out of touch they really are because the Greens have actually moved on to Cabernet Merlot, perhaps, and they now drink macchiatos. <laughs> the, the whole debate has completely changed. But on a more serious note, you know, when exactly is the time to discuss the link between bushfires and climate change policies? It, it, it's a similar process to what the National Rifle Association does in the United States. Whenever there's a major shooting or a tragic event over there, they, they send out a box of thoughts and prayers and say, now's not the time to discuss this issue. It never end, ends up being discussed ever again. It seems like that's what the Liberal and National political leaders across the board, whether it's in the state or whether it's the, the federal leaders, they're quick to dismiss any relationship between climate change and bushfires. They just simply say, well, we don't want to talk about this. Today's not the day to talk about it. Well, when will they find the time to talk about climate change issues? And when will they find the time to talk about the relationship between climate change and bushfires? The New South Wales Liberals and the Federal Liberals, they've been in office for a long, long time, and they've never managed to find the time to talk about climate change issues before. They're, they're desperate. They know they're in the wrong. I don't know that they care about the two people who've already died. I'm, I hope they do, and I'm pretty sure they do. But these are discussions that have to be held now and into the future, and not just discussions. There has to be ac action. When McCormack said it was only an issue for inner city Greens, one of the councils in his own electorate, Wagga Wagga City Council, declared a climate change emergency. Now, I haven't checked the map, but I'm pretty sure Wagga's nowhere near St Kilda or Newtown or Paddington. I'm pretty sure it's at least a 20-minute drive and probably closer to six or seven hours. Two councils in Barnaby Joyce's electorate have also declared climate change emergency. Well, the other factor is that you can get very, very good quality latte and very good Chardonnay in Wagga in the seat of New England and also the northern coast of New South Wales. So it's very easy to obtain those things that they criticise. One other factor that I've noticed is the Nationals and Liberal MPs, they've started going for the personal attack as well. So the Mayor of Glen Innes, this is where the, some of the fires have been occurring, the Mayor of Glen Innes, Carol Sparks, 
She's been a volunteer for the Rural Fire Service for 20 years. She's a nurse and a midwife. She's a great community person. And she just also lost her home in the fires as well. But that doesn't seem to be enough for the conservative forces in Australia. As soon as they discover that she's also a Greens councillor on the Seven Shire Council, they started to attack her for making that link between bushfires and climate change as well. So it's almost like, sure, we'll hear your story, but as soon as you come out and say that you're a Greens politician or a Greens councillor or you're making that link between climate change and bushfires, we're going to tear you down. Uh, you know, this whole idea that it was Greens policies, I'm trying to work out when there was a Greens government in Australia. I, I might have missed it, but I'm pretty sure... I can tell you right now that we've never actually had a Greens government anywhere in Australia. There was a coalition between the Greens and the Labor Party and the Liberals as well in Tasmania. That was some time ago. They've got a different political system there. They've got the Hare Clark system operating there. It's it's hard to call it a coalition between Labor and the Greens in between 2010 and 2013 because in the lower house, the Greens only had one MP as part of that coalition, but they were in a formal coalition between 2010 and 2013. But you're absolutely right. I can't remember the Australian Greens producing a Prime Minister. I can't remember any of the straight Greens or Territory Greens producing a Premier or a, or the Chief Ministers. It's on the record. It's just never happened. For people like Barnaby Joyce or McCormack or Barilaro to actually claim that all of these issues that we're having now are because of Greens policies, it's just a complete furphy. And that's what the bloody disgrace is. I'll be fair, there's been a few Greens mayors around, but thanks to the policies of the federal government, local and state governments, local councils have a much reduced responsibility in terms of this stuff. Even if, say, you know, a rural seat somewhere in Victoria had Greens policies, most of them would have been overridden by state and federal ones anyway. We're going to see this uh, cognitive dissonance with people who want to believe what the government says and with what actually has happened and a lot over the next couple of days. And, of course, blame is never in short supply. In 2015, when Malcolm Turnbull first became Prime Minister, now, of course, this is going back four years, he said that his government would be agile and it would be flexible to change. It would be agile and nimble. The problem with someone like Scott Morrison is that he, he will not, he's not for changing. He, he is not agile and nimble, especially when it comes to climate change. It's almost like a piece of garlic and a silver bullet to him. He's, if there's any issue, even if it comes up to a case where there are severe bushfires and there, there are severe climate change issues, it's just an area that he just does not want to go to. That's across a broad range of ministers as well. Within the coalition, there's Angus Taylor, just doesn't want to talk about it. There's David Littleproud, just doesn't want to talk about it. Being, all of these experts are being fobbed off. All of the people that have got a knowledge about bushfires, knowledge about climate change issues, they're just being fobbed off and they're just being not listened to. So climate change at the moment doesn't seem to be a moral issue. And based on what we've seen recently for this government, it's not an economic issue. And it doesn't even seem to be an environmental issue. For this government, it's a political issue that needs to be managed. They'll fob it off, they'll apportion blame to other people and not take any responsibilities themselves. Australia is falling way behind the rest of the world on climate change issues. Greenhouse emissions are rising dramatically. And it's very difficult to see how any of this will change under a conservative government. The cynic, and then there's a lot of evidence to support this, is that Angus Taylor, David Littleproud, 
don't want to discuss things because it might lead to uneasy questions about their business dealings. This is a government too that doesn't really understand the difference between business dealings and private dealings and government dealings. You can't have somebody hired by the government under commercial inconfidence. All tenders need to be public. All fees paid need to be reported. There might be some argument for, well, there's a new process that they've put money into. They don't want those details of how they did it coming out because the patent hasn't come through yet or what have you. So, But it will cost this much. And then when the details come out, we can argue whether that was right or not. I think that they are now trying to avoid all scrutiny because it's not a very long track from the bushfires to missing and non-existent water to Cayman Islands, which should lead to resignations, possibly criminal charges, possibly jail. I don't know that it would go that far, but certainly that type of result is part of the the picture when you trace events such as those. That's it for this new Policies podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on Apple or Google Podcasts, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.